Welcome to the July edition of Information's Crossroads podcast, where we'll deliver all the project finance news in 30 minutes or less, or you'll get a free pizza. I'm John Burke, America's editor. Joining me today in the studio is U.S. and Canada features man, Andrew Vitelli, uh, a newcomer to the program, Daniela Urias, an energy analyst for Infra's Spark Spread platform. And finally, dialing in from uh, the Brooklyn Home Office today is uh, LATAM news editor, uh, Jonathan Carmody. Welcome to the program, everyone. Thank you for having us on. Happy to be here. JV. So uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about our league tables for the first half of 2019, and uh, we'll end it with uh, talking about Daniela's uh, recent analysis piece on electric vehicle charging stations. Um, but first we uh, talk about U.S. and Canada. Andrew, we can going to talk more about brownfield deals and midstream and energy uh, a little bit less on the greenfield front, but why don't you tell us what uh, what the recent developments have been in the U.S. and Canada for the first half of 19? Yes, yeah, so if you look at the headline numbers for the first half, it's pretty much where it was in uh, in 2018. The total amount of deals was 266, uh, 226. That's a little bit more. There were about 195 or so last year in the same period. Total value 65. Uh, 65.7 billion. That's up from about 62 billion the year before. So a little bit of growth year over year, um, but still in the same frame. And I think the story, if you look, especially at the brownfields of greenfield too, to some degree, is energy, energy, energy. 75% of the deals were either in energy, power, or renewables. So that really was the dominant. Uh, those were the dominant sectors in the first half. And one of the biggest stories was we saw a lot of multi-billion dollar uh, midstream oil and, oil and gas deals. The biggest one was Stone Peak's uh, $3.6 billion acquisition of Oryx, which is focused on Permian crude. That, uh, that deal closed in May. We also had the first deal out of uh, Black, uh, Blackstone Infrastructure Partners. That's the uh, mega fund that's eventually going to be $40 billion dollars. They bought out uh, Tallgrass Energy, led a deal to buy out Tallgrass Energy. That was a $3.3 billion deal. Those assets are centered around Wyoming's Powder uh, River and Wind River Basin. We also had Sempra selling a nearly 2-gigawatt wind portfolio. So overall, most of the activity was in the energy, you know, power and energy and renewable space, especially in midstream energy. And then... The one, one sector that continues to be fairly slow is transportation. Um, the, you know, the biggest deal was uh, the $2.5 billion sale of direct chassis link in terms of brownfields, and that's something that's kind of in the periphery of what you would consider a typical transportation asset. There, you know, there, are, there still is very little activity on the U.S. P3 front. If you look at the whole first half um, in terms of greenfield, there was less than a billion dollars in PPP deals compared to uh, over four billion dollars in Canada. So there is some optimism that maybe that could pick up a little bit in the second half, particularly in the social sector, but so far very little activity in that space. Let's talk about midstream for a moment um, because it's often uh, good to remind our viewership about where we are there. Um, The uh, 
U.S. oil and gas space has had a pretty rocky um, couple years. Uh, our sister publication, DebtWire, can testify that a lot of these uh, drill drillers uh, got hit by the um, low oil prices, uh, which made it um, economically inefficient to just drill oil and make money at the same time. Resulted in a string of bankruptcies. A couple years later, a lot of midstream deals, billion dollars apiece, uh, wedding infrastructure funds. Tell us why um, you know this is more of a, a consistent um, revenue stream uh, in uh, the grand scheme of things, and why infrastructure funds have been so attracted to the space. Yeah, I mean, part of the reason, of course, that they're attracted to the space is because they have a lot of capital to, to deploy. But the typical the typical ownership structure, um, uh, the, the MLPs that were holding this before. In, in the past, historically, they really relied on consistently growing. And the the things that you mentioned that have happened in terms of the prices of oil and gas uh, being a little bit less, uh, coming down a little bit, that has raised real questions about the sustainability of, the, of, of those ownership models. And at the same time, you're getting a sense from some of these companies that the public markets are undervaluing these assets. And that has created a real opportunity for these infrastructure funds to move in. And these funds are very happy to, you know, a lot of these places, uh, a lot of these these uh, infrastructure investors have raised these multi-billion dollar funds and are seeing limited deployment opportunities in the traditional infrastructure sectors. So they're more than happy for the opportunity to deploy uh, $3 billion in in one deal. And over the long run, um, they maybe have a little bit less concern about some fluctuations on a you know, month-to-month basis in the price of oil and gas than somebody who's really constantly tapping the, uh, the public markets. And as for the um, U.S. Uh, greenfield markets, um, you know, the point we can at least make there is that, uh, you know, we've, we've been covering a couple of big social projects uh, to to big energy projects in the university <clears throat> space uh, and um, to civic center projects uh, come to mind Los Angeles and the Nat Western Center in Denver uh, both look like uh, candidates to get done um, timing a little bit uncertain but it, it sounds like fourth quarter 19 first quarter 2020 is where we see, see these projects close um, and what's really interesting on the horizon is, uh, and it's still there, is uh, JFK, um, the terminal project being held by the Carlisle Group um, and these four airlines. Um, there is talk that there could be financial close uh, on that deal in the first quarter of 2020. Uh, however, the timetable keeps getting pushed back. It originally was slated to close by the end of the year. So uh, things to watch out um, for um, the back half of the year. Yeah, as I mentioned, there is some optimism that maybe at least some of these social deals could uh, could end up hitting financial close in the second half. Yeah, but well, we shall see. Moving on to Mr. Carmody, why don't you talk, talk take us into Latin American League tables? Obviously, a huge huge deal uh, in the pipeline space drove it as well as Brazil. Um, so let's uh, let's hear some of the developments. That's right, JB. Uh, we're talking about the Transportadora Sociedad de Gas transaction in Brazil. Uh, this was an ongoing privatization process that saw many international bidders 
was eventually won by CDPQ and NG. And it turns out it was, uh, ended up at around $8.6 billion for, for the 90% stake in the gas network in the northeast of Brazil. And there was a lot of financing associated with this. $2.5 billion in loans from seven international banks and $3.6 billion in bonds issued by three local banks. Now, the $8.6 billion figure makes this the largest deal in information deals history. Uh, it's bigger than all of those giant Australian highways we've seen and, and other transactions around the world. So it's, it's really important for, for Latin America. As we said, it's, it's part of the privatization drive in Brazil. There's a lot of assets on the block from transmission lines to sanitation companies to highways. So, you know, big success for Brazil. Um, they got what they wanted. They managed to avoid all of the complications with the courts, and they finally got this one over the line. So well done to CDBQ, NG, and their financial advisors, Citibank. Uh, it's not the only big deal to close in the, in the period. We also saw Odebrecht finally sell its hydroelectric plant, Chagia talking about a 450-megawatt plant, and they sold this to the Chinese investors, China Three Gorges, for about $1.4 billion. But the interesting thing about the asset, which we reported on, uh, is that they won't actually get a lot of the money out of Resh. They initially reported that they were going to get about half of it, but speaking to our sources, there are a lot of outstanding debts that they owe to the country in terms of tax bills, uh, labor costs, and government-mandated civil reparation for the, the corruption scandal. Uh, let's just remind our listeners that <clears throat> this corruption scandal stretched all around Latin America and all across the globe. Just last night, we saw one of the ex-presidents, uh, Toledo, arrested in San Diego, California, where he's been hiding out from the law and he's now undergoing extradition process. Uh, he's one of four Peruvian presidents who got in trouble for bribes from Odebrecht. They reckon that he allegedly received around $20 million for his campaigns. Uh, and he, like Pablo Pedro Kuczynski, uh, Oyanda Umala, and Alan Garcia, have all found themselves accused of collusion with the Brazilian company. But it's good to see that Odebrecht has finally sold that asset. Very interesting to see that it's China Three Gorges and a consortium of Chinese investors that have acquired it. We know that China Three Gorges is, is very active in the region. Uh, we know also that they've bid for some of Sempra's assets in Luz del Sur in Peru as well. Uh, so this could be a big player that we're going to see in lots of power and energy acquisitions across the region. So those two assets are in the power and the energy sections. But we've also seen that the old stalwart of Latin America, the highways, continue to be incredibly popular. CPP and OTPP completed a 49% stake acquisition of the Pacific Sur Highway, was owned by IFM investors uh, Aliatica. Aliatica obviously being the ex-OHL concessions that IFM investors acquired a couple of years ago. And we've also seen that companies like SASE, who've done so much investing in Latin America in recent years, they recently closed some greenfield highway financing in Colombia. But they also sold in the first half a 49% minority stake in some of their Chilean assets to Towesca. Tawesca had previously bought a minority stake in one of their highways and had acquired other assets. But it's now looking like a, a serious player in the Chilean market. Um, they're a relatively new fund for us. It's quite a trend we're seeing in, in Latin America that there are new fund managers appearing. 
uh, ex-investment bankers who who set up their their own funds and their own vehicles to invest in these assets, just like two of the other funds we've seen recently, talking about highways. Brookfield managed to sell 33% of its urban highways in Santiago, the Vespucio Norte and the Tunnel San Cristobal, to a couple of new funds, new entries with their first investments, uh, Ban Chile, which is Citibank's subsidiary down in, in Chile, and Frontal Trust, uh, an investment company that had never invested in infrastructure before. So it's interesting to see new players enter the market, and it's interesting to see how traditional players readjust their portfolios over time to try and free up capital to make new investments and continue to grow. Excellent. Thank you for that. Um, did you get any sense, um, particularly in Brazil, about where the acquisition multiples were in terms of whether they were in line, would you say, with other Latin American deals, or were they extraordinary? Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, but as I said, this is the largest deal. Um, in terms of the multiples, I'm not aware of, of what that represented here. Um, but it's certainly a large deal. Yeah, I mean... I think you can get get where I'm getting at there. Is it like to a level of irresponsibility where we could see like there being issues down the road? But uh, I guess to your point, we don't know enough quite yet to, to say one way or the other. I would think the tendency for these large investors like CDPQ, like NG, is very much to invest in, in regulated assets, right, right. assets which are backed by public contracts. Uh, and incredibly important public services. Um, we've seen that countries like Mexico and Venezuela have had incredible trouble uh, fueling their power grids and their networks. Mm. So I think a lot of companies are now looking at power and energy assets as, as real essential infrastructure, real core infrastructure that's uh, a pretty safe haven for their for their cash. Okay, well, thanks for that, Jonathan. Appreciate your time. So, Daniela, you did an analysis piece uh, looking at electric vehicle infrastructure or basically charging stations as um, demand for electric vehicles uh, comes up. Um, the need for infrastructure or these charging stations uh, likely uh, in and among gas stations in the country. Um, there's a clear demand for these, but as your research showed, not a lot of appetite for it. So why don't you um, update us uh, as to uh, what your findings were on this. Yes, of course. Um, So when looking at the electrical vehicle market, we're seeing an increase in growth driven by governmental efforts to decarbonize transport sectors along with consumer trends where consumers are moving away from gas-fueled vehicles. So just to give you an idea, in 2015, there were 300,000 EVs in the market. And in 2018, we saw this number jump to 890,000 vehicles. So despite this expansive EV growth in the market, investments in EV infrastructure, as you mentioned, usually charging stations that supply energy to to these vehicles, hasn't grown. So to date, the estimated cost to require the support or this gap um, with this expansive EV market growth through 2035 ranges from $7.8 billion to $8.1 billion per year. So that shows that not only one-fourth of the chargers required are installed and operational, but that the necessary additional deployment would have to grow about 20% per year. So the main question is, why aren't people investing? There's so many big players, such as oil companies, utilities, and energy companies that aren't investing in this infrastructure that seems to be necessary. 
So what we see is that the cost of deployment in my analysis and the development along with the lack of demand have been main deterrents. Um, the current business model doesn't allow for consumers to charge their electric vehicles at a cost-friendly and accessible option that is competitive with oil. Um, when looking at key energy players, we think that they should be investing in electric vehicles and electric charging stations, but it's seen that these companies are only investing in electric in electric charging companies that focus on developing the technology but not deploying the necessary infrastructure. So we analyzed how utilities are in the best position to build and manage charging stations as experts in providing energy. Um, however, despite increases in demand, utilities still need would require an even higher demand to meet these attractive returns. So just to give you another idea, utilities in the U.S. and Canada only own 156 of the total 26,341 operational electric vehicle charging stations in the U.S. So there's not a lot of companies that are developing the technology. There are a lot of companies that are developing the technologies, but these companies are not focusing on deploying or maintaining or operating, as I mentioned earlier. So we're talking about government entities and government incentives that are either investing or putting in initiatives such as legislation to promote charging stations. This past month, the Michigan legislature introduced a bipartisan package that would increase access to EV charging by allowing the state to install EV charging stations in park and ride lots or at state parks, either directly or by lease. So we do see that governments are trying to implement or facilitate the inv these investments. But although that this legislation is supporting EV growth, we don't see much involvement in the sector throughout the United States. So we have seen some big oil companies um, investing in energy companies. As I mentioned, these companies usually focus on the technology, but not in the deployment. Um, to give you an example, BP recently acquired ChargeMaster and Shell recently acquired New Motion, but these companies also only um, only focus on the technology. So without a doubt, these companies understand that, these companies and big investors understand that a competitive market requires competitive buyers and competitive prices, and to the moment, we haven't really seen that. So what we can say about the market is until that demand increases and that these investments or incentives are even higher, people will start investi investing, but until now, we'll just have to wait and see what people will be doing and what these investors are planning to do in the future. I have a question, which I think might just be the follow-up to your <laughs> research no, piece. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, obviously, the um, U.S. has a system that is probably comparable in some ways to other parts of the world and the fact that their gas stations are owned. They can be mom and pops, but they can also be companies that own and just basically lease you know, the oil from, you know, bigger big oil mm -hmm. um, like BP like Hess um, or the the oil companies could own those gas stations too I don't think it's all separated quite yeah. yet mm -hmm. um, so these guys offer the technology they, they own companies that do the technology you know the bigger question is why aren't they offering it to their affiliates that own these gas stations or even their own gas stations um, where your statistics clearly show you know they only own a, a micro fraction of mm -hmm. um you know, the, the need of these charging stations. Exactly. Um, I would definitely say that that would be um, the next move or the ideal um, market. Well, I mean, in cases of these companies, we have to figure out if it's proven technology or not. Exactly. Um, which is, um, you know, going to be the key. But it, it's, um, 
it's always good to see like it skip a cycle in the sense you have these bigger, well-heeled companies that are willing to invest in these technologies where in the past, nascent technologies never seem to succeed in generation one or two at times. I'm not criticizing the entire venture capital community, but venture capitalists do invest, some blow up, some work. Um, it's just a very mediocre, mediocre cycle. Um, and eventually the technologies that get proven get acquired by bigger heel guys. Mm-hmm. Here it seems it's the case of where they're getting in a little bit early to develop this technology. Um, so I, I guess we'll see what happens. Yeah, the main issue would be the unpredictability of either demand. Um, the demand is right. really high, but it hasn't been high enough to right. prove that these investments will be profitable. And you're also looking at an unpredictable trends in mobility. Cities are changing changing so they don't really know if they should be investing either either in like the inside of the city or the outskirts of the city depending on what the future of mobility looks like you're talking you're talking broader sense themes of whether cars are in we'll need yeah exactly yeah got it sure that's that's a fair fair question well more to come daniela thanks for taking the time today um so we're out of time on the podcast today hope you're enjoying your summer um not on this particular reading day but uh we'll be back next month break out 